0: Well, somehow we're in February already, and uh, in my home at least, you can still hear Christmas songs being sung to, uh, sung uh, by the little ones who are clinging to the celebration of the incarnation, and even before that, clinging to the, the joy of the anticipation of Advent. Those songs are still there. It's great, but we are halfway through Epiphany Tide, which is the season where the church gives particular attention to the manifestation of Jesus to the whole world, as represented by his revealing to the Magi. That's what epiphany is. Epiphany means to make manifest. Uh, The the word comes from a Greek word, which uh, at its root means to shine, to shine, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. He said at one of the feasts in Jerusalem, at the Hanukkah feast, he said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But when Jesus said that, you would have the light of life, he didn't just mean that his people, his followers, would have the light for their own sake so that they could walk through the world and not stumble around as if in the dark banging their heads on the folly of the world. But it was also for the sake of others. Because elsewhere, as it was read in the gospel this morning, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then he says, you are the light of the world. So apparently, in following Jesus and getting light from Jesus, We become light in Jesus and through Jesus. This is the calling of Christians. And as Jesus was in the world, as he understood his vocation to bring light to the world, he brought glory to God. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And being a light to the world, people see our good works, and it points them to our Father in heaven. Jesus said as much for his own light bearing on the the night of his betrayal when he was with his disciples in the upper room, he prayed to the Father and he said, Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the works that you gave me to do. Paul says later, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's how we glorify him. It's how we bring him honor. See, God could have, he, he could have arranged things such that when someone put their faith in Jesus, boom, they are beamed up like Scotty into the heavenly places. It could have worked that way. He, he, he doesn't necessarily need, he doesn't need the church. He could have communicated the gospel in any, any manner. He could send angels And as people believe, pew, pew, they're up and away. But in his wisdom and in his own purposes, for his own glory, he keeps us. He keeps us here for a time because we have a vocation. We have a calling, and that is to be the light of the world. See, Jesus ascended. Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. The light, like I mentioned to the kids, It had been tried to, someone had tried to snuff it out. The enemy had tried to to hide that light behind a stone, to bury it. But in his resurrection, the light prevailed over the darkness. And it has continued to rise. It rose into the heavenly places. And now we, the church, as we remain on the earth, we are in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, doing good works, doing good work such that people see it, and because of the way that we go about our vocation, the way that we work, the way that we live, the way that we speak in the world, the way that we are the church, people know to give glory to God. So that's our identity. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. That that question is settled, but there is a question that he leaves open and that question is left open when he says, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they place it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And saying, in the same way, that it would be foolish to light a lamp and then cover it underneath a basket. You must let your light shine. Now, why would anyone not want to let their light shine? Because apparently we have some agency. We have some decision, some choice in this. We could let the light shine, or we could choose to not. Well, consider what Jesus told his disciples on that same night where he prayed to the Father about how he'd accomplished his works. He also said this, "'If the world hates you, "'know that it has hated me before it hated you. "'If you were of the world, "'the world would love you as its own. "'But because you are not of the world, "'but I chose you out of the world, "'therefore the world hates you. "'Remember the word that I said to you, "'a servant is not greater than his master?' If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Well, it's no wonder then that someone would want to hide the light of Christ because there is a cost. There is a cost. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will experience persecution. And, and note what Jesus said, and I, and I mentioned it again to the kids He said, blessed are you when others revile you. That's that's words. And persecute you. And again, words. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of my name. Rejoice and be glad for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Notice that Jesus doesn't limit persecution to physical violence or socioeconomic oppression. We often downplay verbal persecution as if it's if it's not something that's, that's worthy of being called suffering. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. This is exactly how they persecuted the prophets. So in being the light, as the darkness feels the pain, gets exposed, that's what light does, is it exposes, let us not fear man more than we fear God or love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And when, inevitably, if you're being light, you will experience at some point reviling, slander, falsehood said against you, as long as it's false, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. I find this very encouraging, that Jesus calls us the light of the world, says that people are going to glorify the Father in heaven, but he's saying that right on the heels of saying, by the way, expect persecution and you're blessed if you, if you experience that. Because if he had just said, you're the light of the world, go and shine, and we go into the world, and we shine, and the darkness hates it, and we, and we, and we hold forth the truth gently, firmly, lovingly, like a 5,000-lumen like a flood lamp, and the darkness responds with vitriol and contempt, how discouraged would we be? How tempted to quit might we be if Jesus had not assured us that if they hated me, they will also hate you? But the light has come into the world, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just because the darkness doesn't like it doesn't mean that since Jesus' resurrection, the light has not been growing from place to place, nation to nation, continent to continent, generation to generation, century to century. The light has been growing because the darkness cannot overcome it. So be encouraged in your vocation as light in the world. In your good works, glorify God. Now, Jesus was a master teacher, so he didn't just give us one metaphor to understand our vocation, namely to, to bring glory to God on earth as in heaven. He gave us another one. He said that you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the Of the earth. Salt in our day is ubiquitous. It's plentiful, it's cheap, and therefore we don't think of it as a a very valuable commodity. If the house was burning down, I don't think anybody would think to grab the salt shaker. (laughs) But in the ancient world, to Jesus' hearers, salt was incredibly valuable, it was a marvelous mineral. Some, some societies in the ancient world considered it divine. Others thought it was magical because of its unique properties. What, what, is it, what is it about salt that the Romans would sometimes pay their soldiers in salt? And if a soldier was a bad soldier, they would say he wasn't worth his salt. Well, I'm not a food scientist, but this is as best as I understand it. Salt's primary function in the ancient world was as a preservative, uh, not a seasoning agent. The salt not only extracts water from the meat or the produce, but it it brings with that water the the microorganisms that cause the food to spoil. And having a viable way to preserve food, it wasn't just a hobby like our sauerkrautting is today. It was life or death, particularly for people that lived in temperate climates, because when the winter months came, you had to have food available to eat, otherwise, you die. So, salt was incredibly important as a preservative. So, what does that mean then for the church? Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. I believe that it means that the church has been left on the earth, not beamed up but we remain and we grow in order to keep the world from spoiling, from corrupting. Jesus himself was the salt of the earth. He came, he took on, he he drew out all of the sin, but the worst of humanity, he, he drew it out against himself. Paul says, God made him to be sin for us. Jesus became sin, he took our human nature, he took all of our sinfulness, presented it before the Father's judgment, experienced that judgment, and brought what was a corrupt human nature through the grave into incorruptibility. Now in him, that reality continues. We are the salt of the earth. We're united to him who is incorruptible. So his work is is not only to heal us, to sanctify us, but also through us, to keep the world from descending into greater and greater corruption. Something like this would have been the thing that the first hearers would have understood. They're not thinking, we flavor the earth, they're thinking, interesting, somehow by following the way of Jesus, we keep it from corruption. That's how it's always been. If you look at the last couple thousand years of the church's life on earth, gradually, slowly, but surely, many of the things that we take for granted as basic human rights, basic human necessities, basic ways of understanding one another, public life, those things emerged by the Christian worldview seeping into one society after another. There's even a a growing number of atheist scholars of history who recognize that the things that we would call modern successes are actually built upon and flowing from Christianity over the ages. So that is the function of the church in the world, to keep it from spoiling. Now, you might object, rightly so, Are you sure? Because it looks like the world is spoiling. (laughs) Uh, At least our part of the world seems to be descending into greater and greater corruption. And that's a fair question. And I think that it begs another question. Have we lost our saltiness? Have we lost our saltiness out of fear of man, out of the love of man's glory? For whatever reason, Have we lost our saltiness? Because it's not the first time that that would have happened. Israel had lost its saltiness. Israel, over the generations and century to century, they worshiped idols, they abandoned the law, they committed idolatry and iniquity and injustice, and they wouldn't turn back in spite of God sending prophet after prophet. They lost their saltiness. They they didn't... They couldn't even preserve themselves, much less bless the nations around them. And so eventually, they were thrown out and trampled under the feet of one empire after another. It may be that in the larger church that we're a part of, in this part of the world, let's just call it the evangelical church in America, it may be that we have lost some of our saltiness. And it may be that, in a manner of speaking, God has permitted his church to be trampled um, as a matter of discipline, Not, not to punish, but to restore us, that we might share in his holiness and become salty again. It may be that the church appears to be dying as it's trampled, but as Chesterton once said, Christianity has died many times, yet it has a God who knows the way out of the grave. Jesus asked this question rhetorically. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I think for man that this is impossible, but for God, nothing is impossible. The calling still remains to be the salt of the earth. He can make us salty, which... If you're familiar with the Urban Dictionary, that means like really sad and bummed out about something. But I mean restoring saltiness. Okay. Now, in saying that uh, salt's primary function in the ancient world was as a preservative, it doesn't, that doesn't diminish the fact that it is a, a, an agent for seasoning. Salt makes everything taste better, and I mean everything. Right? There's caramel, and then there's salted caramel. Right? There's, there's steak, which is wonderful, And then there's a steak steak that's been salted and brought to room temperature and seared and rested, a little bit of butter, and that's just glorious, right? (laughs) Really, everything is better with salt. Even a grapefruit goes from tart to sweet with a sprinkling of salt on it. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. And in the same way, Christians, the followers of Jesus, who's the one who, who designed the whole world, who ordered it, who set it in its place... He is the wisdom of God. When we follow him, we become the seasoning in the world, drawing out and amplifying the glories of creation. Everything that God has hidden within the world, his people get to pull out, magnify, glorify unto him. All of humanity descended from Adam has this vocation to subdue and have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply to cultivate the earth, to draw out its potential, but it is the church. The church as the descendants of the second Adam, the the best Adam. We are the ones who have been set right. Our, Our minds and our hearts, our relationships with God and with one another and with the world, we're the ones who've been set right. We've been made righteous. And the effect of that, if we're walking in it, is that we flavor the world, we cultivate it. We take what God has put in it and we glorify it. Our work becomes fruitful and it multiplies. Our relationships are fruitful, they give life. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth, both to preserve but also to cultivate, to season. And if we have lost our saltiness, God can make us salty again. That was the second metaphor. Third metaphor he gives us. You're a city on a hill. You cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It gives light to all who see it. Jesus was this city on a hill. He actually ascended a hill And he said, I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The sky tried to hide him, it darkened him. He was naked upon the cross, but all could see him and all will see him because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He cannot be hidden. The mountain of the Lord continues to rise and it will become the highest mountain in the earth, and the nations will stream to it. This is what the prophets promised us. Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, and now in him, we ascend. We become that city on a hill, giving light to the world, but also being the example. This is what's the the potential of what a city is. To be be something that is glorious, to be something that draws together the best of of human work and ingenuity. That's what cities often are, that's what they can be. Often, of course, they're they're full of sinners like everywhere else, but there's more of them per square foot than anywhere else in the world, and so they can be degrading as well. But this image of a city on a hill is taken from the Old Testaments. It's the idea of Jerusalem. Jerusalem being on the mountain, the highest mountain of the earth, and the nations seeing that mountain and being drawn to it. What Jesus is getting at is what Moses envisioned this, um, this uh, s- strategy for evangelism, if you will. Um, when he was with the people of Israel as they were about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy 4. Moses says this. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill, and the nations as they passed by whether to do trade with one another or to go to war against one another. They would see this peculiar people who who had weird customs related to food and planting their crops and the clothes that they wore and, and their work rhythms. And they would see the abundance, the fruitfulness, the blessedness of God upon them. And they would begin to wonder, what is it about this nation and their God that is so unique? Jesus says that we are the city on the hill. And as he didn't come to abolish the prophets and the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, neither did he come to abolish that strategy of evangelizing the world, of blessing the nations that is found in the law. He didn't come to abolish that, he came to fulfill it. And he did. He ascended the hill, he has become the light. And now we participate in his fulfillment. We don't have to fulfill it. It's not on us. Israel couldn't do it. We couldn't do it either, except that it's been done in Jesus. And in our union with him, we now participate and we walk in that fulfillment. Do you believe that about the church? That by walking with God and experiencing his blessing, Others would come to to wonder, maybe there's something about what those Christians say, about Jesus being Lord and his Lordship being good. Maybe there's something to that. Yes, there is a place, obviously, for evangelism. Go, proclaim the good news. Interestingly, you won't find in the New Testament, after after the Gospels, Jesus' direct commands to his apostles You won't find a command to evangelize, to share the gospel, it's not there. But you find all sorts of commands about how to live as salt and light in the world and to be ready to share the reason for the hope that you have when others ask. So this is not to diminish evangelism as we understand it, it's to fill it out. What are we evangelizing them toward? What are they being drawn to? What does confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior result in? Is that something attractive? Is it something good? So the light of the world, the salt of the earth, a city on a hill. This is our vocation as the church. This is our identity. And I hope that you get a sense for your own work, whatever it is, homemaking, uh, selling things, making things, wholesaling, distributing, whatever work you do, educating, it takes on such great significance when you realize who you are according to Jesus. That in your work, you're the salt of the earth. What is it that needs preserving? What is it that because of the truth that you know can be prevented from spoiling. Where, where might you be covering up the lights out of fear of man? Where might you be able to rejoice and give thanks to God rather than complain because of the reviling that you receive? No matter what it is that you do, changing a diaper, building a machine, Serving somebody coffee, um, investing your time, spending your money, whatever it is that you do, every task that you have and every role that you fulfill is an opportunity for the manifestation of the kingdom of God. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us to pray that, and the Father intends to answer it. And I think that he answers that prayer by making his people salt and light in the world. It's through us that his kingdom is manifest. Where else is the world going to see what God's kingdom is like? Where else is the world going to discover what it looks like when Jesus rules, if not in the church? This is why we must be here and embrace our vocation While we hope, of course, we we, we hope for the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We hope for eternal life. We, We eagerly anticipate when there's no more thorns, there's no more pain. Nevertheless, we are here to be the light of the world. And if the church wasn't, the light of Christ would not be here. The salt would be gone and this whole thing would spoil. But as it is, we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And then we go out and in the way that we live, the way that we work, the way that we relate, the way that we think. In all of those ways, God's kingdom comes on earth as in heaven. We have been given by God good works. Good works, not to accomplish so that he will love us. We're not saved by our good works. We are saved for these good works. And if we will walk in them, if we will embrace them, no matter how obscure or how glorious, whether whether they are acknowledged or not, if we will walk in them, people will see, and they will glorify God in heaven. So let's walk in them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.